Thank you very much for coming and welcome to um, the University of Nebraska. Um, we are here today um, for uh, another workshop that is part of our series, Science of Safe Food. Today, we're going to be focusing on food safety for farmers market. And our first lecture is going to be uh, Introduction to Food Microbiology. I am Andrea Bianchini. I am a professor here in the Food Science and Technology Department. Um, and my area of expertise is um, working um, with food processes and how to make the food safer. So basically, I have a food engineering and microbiology background. So when we talk about microorganisms in, in foods, um, basically, all raw agricultural commodities that you may work with or use as an ingredient will contain microorganisms. There's nothing we can do about it. They grow in the environment and they're exposed to um, the air, to the soil, to water, and all those things contain microorganisms. We can't grow them um, in a in sterile environment. So they'll have microorganisms. Our uh, duty um, is, uh, or our task, is to make sure that we prevent the bad ones from being present in the food. We want to uh, prevent the pathogens from being present in the foods. We want to reduce the spoilage microorganisms to, so, to be able to preserve the food longer. Um, and in some cases, we want to promote the growth of the good ones. In case if you want to do a fermentation, for example, well, uh, in some cases, uh, we may use a um, culture that we add, like you would, for example, to prepare yogurts or maybe a sourdough bread, you might add a culture to the product. Or in some cases, you just let the organisms that are present in that product to grow um, in, a, in a beneficial way. So our task is controlling that population, killing the bad guys, reducing the spoilage ones, and promoting the growth of the good ones if that's your goal, if you're doing a fermented product, for example. The microorganisms that we're going to be concerned of today will include molds, yeast, bacteria, and virus. And I'm going to very briefly here um, introduce you to each of these different classes of microorganisms just to kind of give you a little bit of background. And you're going to see that a lot of the regulations that Jane is going to present to you in subsequent lectures, um, it's all tied back to basic food micro. So this is important even if, if you're trying to think like why? Why is she explaining so much about this or why should I care? Because all the regulations later on today, you're going to see that it ties back to uh, the basic micro. So basically, um, our, um, uh, what we've done, um, scientists and regulators, is we learned as much as we could about the microorganisms, and we use those characteristics and that information to prevent foodborne illnesses and reduce the spoilage. So basically, we use what we know about them, kind of like against them. So that's the point here. So molds are multicellular organisms, meaning there's more than one cell that makes up the organism, just kind of like us. Um, they reproduce by spores. You can think of the spores as little seeds, little plant seeds. So wherever this little seed lands, a new organism can grow um, if the conditions are right. They're larger than bacteria and yeasts, and they're widely distributed in nature. There's not much that we can do about from preventing them from growing from here and there because they kind of move with the air. They're little spores. 
they kind of move with the air and they can land anywhere. So it's kind of hard to control them in that way. They survive on many substances. How many times have you seen um, a drywall just turn black after a flooding or after a water event, right? They don't need much to grow. If you give them a little bit of moisture and a little bit of um, um, food, be it carbohydrates or any other type of food, um, any type of uh, cellulose um, or material that it's like that, they will grow. They don't need much. They are very, very um, um, versatile in that way. They don't need much. They're, they're, they get very creative um, on how they can uh, survive in the environment. Um, so they're more tolerant to cold than heat. For us, that's a very good piece of information because it means that they are, they're going to be very easily killed by any heating that we do in our food. Any heat process, pasteurization, and all that will kill those microorganisms, which is very good, right? Uh, so like if you're baking your bread, the process of baking should kill them. If you're uh, making any um, acidified foods or any jams or jellies that require some cooking, the cooking should get rid of these microorganisms. So as long as you preserve that food enclosed and in the right conditions or preserve it from being exposed again to those spores that might be in the air, you may get um, a little bit of an extension of shelf life. Um, but they're very tolerant to cold. So what that means is that foods that we refrigerate tend to be spoiled by this microorganism. So if you bring from the store a piece of cheese, it looks beautiful. While it's, it's packaged, it will maintain its, um, its quality and um, the, the conditions. But as soon as you open that package of cheese and start eating from it and taking the slices off of it, Spores that are in the air may land on that cheese and now you put it in the fridge and slowly that mold will grow and then that's when your cheese gets spoiled. So just to keep that in mind. Um, yeasts are unicellular. They're usually egg-shaped. They're smaller than molds, larger than bacteria. They reproduce themselves by budding, which basically, again, if we can relate to plants, is a little bud of the plant that kind of shoots off. Here it's very similar. You have a cell that's going to shoot off another cell and it's going to kind of put inside there all the information and all the machineries uh, that it needs to, to grow and reproduce itself later. So it kind of basically uh, makes a baby uh, to the side of the cell and then when that little daughter cell has everything that it needs to be on its own, it gets, um, uh, uh, gets kind of like closed off from the mother cell and released. So here in this slide we can see that happening. So this is the daughter cell, and once the process is ready, there's gonna, this cell here, it's going to close off this gate or this bridge, and then this daughter cell is going to be on its own, and it's going to be able to grow and reproduce itself as well. So one organism will give origin to two, two can give origin to four, and so on. So we have like uh, what we call the growth of the organism. They're associated with liquid foods with, um, that are very high in sugar and acid, so they might be an issue for um, jams and jellies. Um, they, they, they can grow in those um, products and cause spoilage. <coughs> Bacteria are very important or the most important of the three that we're going to talk about today because they're the ones that will cause illnesses, foodborne illnesses. And those are the ones that, from a public health standpoint, should concern us the most. Uh, they can produce enzymes or toxins and release those in the food as they grow. 
is just part of their process. They produce those um, compounds and some of their toxins can be um, very, very, um, uh, cause very, very um, serious illnesses. So some of them may cause a intoxication and you end up with a gastrointestinal issues and some of them can also be uh, neurotoxins, uh, so they can affect our neural system, and then you can, uh, it can lead to death, and that's the case of the toxin produced by a bacteria called Clostridium botulinum, uh, which is very much a problem, and or I should say a concern, for canned foods. So th that's the organism that we're very uh, interested when we talk about acidified foods and canned foods is Clostridium because of this toxin that it can produce and then uh, can lead to, to death. Uh, they're single cell and they come in several shapes and forms. Viruses are small infectious agents that replicate only when they're inside of living cells. While not inside, they will just exist, but they won't be able to replicate themselves. And they're very, very small. They are like 100 of the size of a bacteria. So they're very small. Now, um, bacteria, they, because they're so important to us for the reasons I already mentioned uh, regarding the public health concern and foodborne illnesses, we're going to start now focusing more on them and discussing a little bit more about them because uh, we're, um, all the, the things that we're going to learn more later today will relate back to these characteristics of bacteria. So they're going to reproduce themselves by division. And here we have a flow chart that kind of show us how that would work. So you have a bacteria that will start expanding itself and kind of duplicating everything that it has inside. As we can see here in this step, it's elongated and everything, the DNA material is being replicated. And then they're going to divide themselves into two organisms and then once they are separated like that, they're independent and they can start the process once again. In optimum conditions, this whole process will take about 20 to 30 minutes, which is rather fast if you think about, right? Um, if you leave your milk sitting in the counter for a couple of hours, you allow the bacteria to multiply um, at least four times. Um, but remember that one bacteria will give rise to two, two to four, so it's actually a logarithmic um, increase in the number of cells. So it's, they, they get to very high numbers fairly quick. Different bacteria will get to, um, will have this generation time that I mentioned of 20 to 30 minutes. That's in optimum conditions. And it also varies with different bacteria. So here I have an example, a chart that shows the growth curve for some of the uh, different bacteria. So Geobacillus stereothermophilus, which is this blue line here, you can see it takes about 20 minutes for that cycle to happen. E. coli takes about 30 minutes in optimum conditions. And some other bacteria, like Neisseria, will take about 40 minutes. So it's very specific to each different um, genus and species. But um, the, the time or the generation time can be as short as 20 minutes, and we need to keep that in mind. Another thing that is very important for us, and it's going to come up uh, again later in our, um, in our lectures, is about the ability of some bacteria to form spores. So the bacterial spores, they're basically a time capsule or like a safety uh, measure that is used by the bacteria 
when it senses that it could die. So instead of just letting the environment destroy it and, and say, um, uh, perhaps eliminate that organism, it's going to say, I am going to make sure that my species can survive. So I'm going to pack it up in this little capsule that it's really, really hard. Everything I would need to survive. And then it's going to put in there all the information and the DNA and everything that it needs to survive. And then even if the environment ends up killing this organism, that little capsule will survive because it's made to do so. Nature was very smart that way. And it, it, it's made to survive. So then when the conditions now are right again and um, are optimal again, that little capsule will um, germinate and turn into a vegetative cell. So here we have two terms to learn, the vegetative cell and the spore. The vegetative cell, it's kind of like the mother cell. And then when it, uh, it feels the need, it's going to produce a spore uh, inside of that cell. And then even if this vegetative cell, the mother cell, gets killed, the spore is going to be released in the environment and it's going to survive. Once the conditions are right, that spore is going to turn again into a vegetative cell that can multiply itself, one turning into two, like we talked about a minute ago, or it can go ahead and make a spore again. So it can choose um, what it's going to do next depending upon the conditions in the environment. Why is it important? Because the bacteria that can produce a spore, they take a little bit more work to get rid of because that spore is more resistant. So now, if I could kill this bacteria here by uh, simply boiling my product or cooking my product, to kill that spore, I'm going to require pressure cooking. So that's where things you know, start to, like we need to know about this to make sure that we um, process our foods in the, in the correct way. Um, so the vegetative cell is going to be eliminated or killed by simple pasteurization, while the spore is going to require higher heat. Or we can use other means, and I'm going to talk about a little later here, other means of preventing that spore from growing and creating issues. Okay? So keep that in mind. Here's just a few pictures um, for you to see how that spore can be inside of the cell. So here we have a under the microscope picture of a, um, uh, a bacteria. It could be perhaps a clostridium that uh, has a spore inside. Uh, this one here is germinating. So we can see that the spore is kind of breaking itself and a vegetative cell is coming out of it. So that's kind of like what it would happen given the right conditions. So now we're going to talk about the factors that affect the bacterial growth and their survival because these are the tools. You can see this or you can look at this as our little toolbox that we can pull out and say, in this case, I'm going to use this to prevent bacteria from growing. In this other product, I'm going to use this other tool. So it's kind of our toolbox that we can use for preserving foods. So the first thing that we're going to talk about is nutritional requirements. Um, every bacteria has a nutritional requirement, and they kind of like us, some prefer some flavors, so to speak, some nutrients, than others. Um, so 
In that case, they always will need a carbon source, a nitro nitrogen source, and some other trace, uh, trace elements and vitamins. In our case, because we are processing and making food, it's kind of hard to get rid of this or, or, make, or do something about it because our food is full of nutrients. So it's hard to use this particular requirement against a bacteria. Um, in some cases, what we can do is add preservatives and that preservative can prevent the bacteria from growing. Uh, so we can, we can tweak a little bit and, and use preservatives to help us. Um, other things that we can do are related to moisture, for example. So moisture is something that is extremely important for bacteria and any other microorganism. They can't grow if moisture is not available. And the reason why I have some kind of complicated pictures here, but the message I want to give it to you is um, this is the bacterial cell. This is what surrounds a bacteria. It's a layer that looks like this. They don't have mouths and arms like we do. So how are they going to search and get the nutrients from the environment and bring inside of the cell? The only way they can do that is by using water to move things, to flow things in and flow things out. And they have different mechanisms. Some are simply by permeation, just permeating that cell. Some are, require a little bit more uh, energy. So those are facilitated diffusion. They have like mechanisms or sometimes enzymes or um, um, compounds that are present in that uh, bacterial cell um, or that bacterial layer here that is going to help the nutrients to go from outside to inside. And that's going to require some energy, and that's what it's showing on this one here. It's the, the nutrients are not going to move by themselves, but they're going to be helped by this mechanism at the, at the cell wall, and that's going to require energy. So we have different types of uh, mechanisms to move things from inside out or outside in. It goes both ways. And in all of those, we need water. If water is not present, things cannot flow back and forth. So how can we use that characteristic now to um, preserve foods and prevent pathogens from being an issue in food? Um, we're going to remove the water, right? If we take that water away, we can preserve the food and we can prevent the microorganisms from growing. There are different ways that we can do that. We can simply dry the food, um, but not all the foods that we consume are dried, right? But if you dry, you are physically removing that water. There are other ways that we can remove the water or prevent it from being available to microorganisms. And that's the concept of water activity that I'm going to introduce to you. So basically, water activity is a term that we use to describe how much water can move in and out of that product. If you have a product that a lot of water can move in and out, you have a product with high water activity, and um, do you think it's going to be easier or more difficult for microorganisms to grow in that case? Easier, exactly. So the higher the water activity, the easier it is for microorganisms to grow because they need that water and they need that water to be free. The water cannot be bound. However, we can influence, we can use this, knowing all this, we can use it in our favor and we can use ingredients in our products that actually bind water. 
making them less available to microorganisms from growing. And that's what I have here in the picture. So basically, let's um, pretend that this is our product, and you have all these different molecules that are part of the ingredients inside of that product. The water likes certain ingredients, so it's going to hold on to it, kind of like give hands to it. And in some other cases, there are other ingredients that the water doesn't like very much, so it's not going to hold hands with it. So what we do is basically we add, and in this case here I'm adding as an example salt, just, you know, sodium chloride as an example. If I add an ingredient like sodium chloride, it really likes water. So now it's going to hold that water down. So as long as that water has been held down by an ingredient, it cannot move in and out of the product, and it cannot be used by microorganisms from growing. Ingredients that help us a lot in this regard, salt and sugar. So when we work with our preserves and we make preserves and jams and jellies, we're adding some sugar to the product or we're cooking the product to concentrate the sugars that are naturally present. By doing that, by cooking the product down, we're eliminating some water by evaporation, so we're physically removing some water, and we are letting the water that is there bind to the sugars that are present either naturally by the fruit or because we added sugar to it. Now we're reducing the water activity of the product a lot, and that's what helps us in preserve those products. Okay? So just as an example, um, the water activity of water, it would be one, because that's how we measure it. Basically, the water activity measurement, it's a comparison between completely free water. And you would have completely free water in a glass of water, right? So the glass of water has a water activity level of one. A cookie will have a water activity level of 0.3. Bread will have a water activity of 0.92. Where do you think, don't look at your book, because the answer is there, don't look at your book. And then everybody looked. Don't look at it. Tell me, where do you think a jam or a jelly would fall in that line? Do you think you would have more water available than bread or less? Where do you think jam would be? Think about it, like how it spreads on the bread and such. You think it would have more water? It would be over here? Let's see. It's actually on the other side. Why? The sugars. It binds that water. So it actually falls right here in the line. So that's how we get them to be preserved, is because that water is there but it's not available. So that's the trick. It's to have the water there to have a moist product, but the water not being available for growth. Okay? So sugar is a great, um, it's great at water binding. So now let's look at the minimum water activity for growth of different microorganisms. So just we get familiar with them and, um, and we can understand how it works. So here we have the pathogen. This is Staphylococcus aureus is a pathogen. Um, it needs 0.85 um, of water activity for growing. Salmonella, Clostridium, there are other two pathogens, they need 93. 
So if we want to try and keep our foods free from pathogenic growth or bacteria, pathogenic bacteria in their growth, I need to have my water activity below what? 0.85. If I don't want these guys to grow, I need to have my water activity below 0.85. Keep that in mind because part of our regulations is that 0.85. That's where it's coming from. To prevent pathogenic bacteria from growing, we need to keep the water activity below 0.85. Yeast and molds, they require um, somewhat less um, water for growing. So that's why sometimes they are the ones spoiling our jams and our jellies. Because remember, what was the water activity of the jam in my example? 0.75. How much molds need to grow? 0.75. So they can grow there. So sometimes that's how those uh, products get spoiled. Another characteristic that is extremely important um, for us is the uh, ability of microorganisms to either use oxygen for growing as respiration or not. So some organisms are called aerobes or aerobic microorganisms. Those microorganisms need oxygen. If you remove oxygen, if you vacuum package your food, they can't grow anymore. Some other microorganisms are anaerobes. Um, they're called anaerobes and they are anaerobic microorganisms. They only grow if the oxygen is taken away. So now your vacuum packaged food would allow them to grow. Or if you have a canned product inside of the can, do we have lots of oxygen or no oxygen at all? No oxygen. So the anaerobic microorganisms could grow in there without no problem. We have pathogenic bacteria that falls in either of those two groups. So we need to be aware and, and know about them. Clostridium botulinum, which is the microorganism that we're very much concerned in acidified foods and canned foods, is anaerobic, which means is that if we don't do something else, what happens? They'll grow just fine inside of that can, okay? So keep that in mind as well. So what we do to preserve the foods based on oxygen requirements, we can do a modified atmosphere packaging. You can do vacuum packaging, as I mentioned, by removing the oxygen or changing that atmosphere to prevent organisms that need oxygen from growing. So that's what we can do. Now we're going to talk about temperature because, again, it's another very important characteristic that if we know about the behavior of the microorganisms, we can then use somewhat against them. So there are some microorganisms that really like low temperatures. And um, this is a chart in Celsius degree. Um, so I'm going to try and correlate with Fahrenheit. So this would be basically your refrigera uh, refrigeration um, temperature, uh, maybe in the 35 to 40-ish, right? 42 maybe. It would be in this area. Then your mesophiles here, they would be in your room temperature, maybe 60 to 75 Fahrenheit would be in this area. Thermophiles here would be um, a little bit higher, maybe in the hundreds. Um, and then hyperthermophiles, they're um, higher than that. Um, so just for you to have an idea. So if you think about looking at this, this would be your refrigeration 
concern, like microorganisms that can grow under refrigeration. This ones would be the ones that can grow under um, ambient temperature. And these are the ones that can grow in your food if the food is not maintained in the right temperature. So um, sometimes when we are processing foods, we're going to cook it to a high temperature to kill microorganisms. But then after cooking, we need to chill the food down. Not if you're going to serve it. If you're going to serve it, you keep it hot. But if you're not going to serve it right away, we need to cool it down. And what we're trying to do is get away from the area where microorganisms that like heat grow and spoil that product before you can even serve. So that's why restaurants, they have that danger zone. So if they are preparing the food, they have to cook at, what, 165 Fahrenheit and then keep it there until it's consumed. Or if they're not going to serve it right away, they need to chill it quick and then keep it refrigerated. So then we jump from kind of like all the way here, we jump all the way here and preserve the microorganisms that would grow in this area from spoiling and causing issues in the food. Okay? And how do we um, use the temperature then for food preservation? We can chill the food, we can freeze foods, right? If we freeze them, we go way below that refrigeration temperature, so nothing can grow under frozen conditions. No microorganisms will grow under frozen conditions. So to preserve foods, we can either refrigerate them or freeze them, and that's the reason why we do so. It's to get away from that growth zone. Uh, we can also use very high temperatures, like I mentioned, the cooking temperatures, to kill the microorganisms. And what I want to um, point out in this chart is just how here you have the number of bacteria that could be present in the product. And let's say that you're starting with an extremely high number, like here in this chart, and then you apply temperature for 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 12, 14, 16 minutes. As you apply that temperature to the product, the number of bacteria uh, and bacterial cells in the product is going to be reduced. So that's important. That's something that we use a lot in food processing, right? Another thing to consider is that, um, so here, for example, if I have 10,000 cells, it might take um, 12 um, 12 minutes to achieve that. Let me see if I have another comparison. Yes. And to get to 1,000, so to go from 10,000 to 1,000, it took me two minutes. So in this case, we're going to say that it takes two minutes to reduce my population by 90%. That's important for us in science and in regulations because we call this the 90% reduction, we call it a decimal reduction. We're reducing the population by one-tenth, right? So this decimal reduction here, in this case, takes me two minutes. So if I want to reduce the population by 99%, how long do I need to cook? Four minutes, right? It's two for 90, four minutes for 99. If I want to add another tenth, or another decimal reduction, 99.9, .9, I need to cook for six minutes. Each of these reductions that we're calling, it's, we call it a log reduction. So one log reduction in this case takes two minutes. Two log reductions, four minutes. Three log reductions, 
six minutes, and we can add on. So why is this important? Because sometimes the regulation might say that when you cook your product, you need to have a five log reduction. So you need to first find out how long does it take to get one, and then you need to multiply that by five, and that's the time of cooking. Sometimes that work is already done for us, and they provide us with tables and charts that kind of tell us, at this temperature, you need to cook for this long to get your internal temperature of a roast, for example, safe. Um, if you have chicken, then you're going to have to cook at this temperature for this long. So those tables, guess what? They were all made based on a chart that looked like this. That's where the science is coming from. So those time and temperatures are not necessarily pulled out of a hat. They are all science-based, okay? So this was all done at a temperature of 60 Celsius degree, uh, as an example. If I use a higher temperature, what do you think is going to happen with my times? Exactly. I don't need to cook as long. But if I reduce my temperature, I need to cook longer. And that's what this chart is kind of showing us. As you go down in value, now you need to cook longer. As you go higher in value, you can achieve the same log reduction in a much shorter amount of time. So keep that in mind when uh, we talk about those log reductions and temperatures. And uh, we also need to be aware that vegetative cells will be killed much faster than the spores. So the vegetative cells are much easier to be reduced than the spores. And when we talk about canned foods, what we are trying to kill there is the spore of Clostridium botulinum. So it's a very hard um, task to achieve. That's why we need so high temperatures and pressure cookers and that sort of thing. Another characteristic, pH. Um, it refers to the degree of acidity or alkalinity in a product. The more acid, the lower the pH. And a low pH is inhibitory to certain microorganisms and especially to spore germination. So if we put our puzzles here, start to think about it. Um, so it's hard to kill the spore, but maybe I don't need to kill it. Maybe I just need to prevent from growing. What can I do? Reduce the pH. Where do we do that in our food processing? With fermentation and acidified foods. You don't need to pressure cook those, but you need to make sure that the pH is very low to prevent the spore from germinating. So here's where things start to kind of come together, right? The organisms, um, they have a most favorable pH for growing. Usually eastern molds like lower pH and bacteria likes neutral pH. So if we go away from the neutral, if we go to low pHs, then the bacteria starts not liking it, not growing in those conditions. And if we are going to have a spoilage issue, it's going to be with eastern molds. So those are the ones that might grow in products that have been either fermented or acidified, like uh, tomato sauce. You may have mold growing on the top of it because they don't mind too much the pH, but it's safe regarding pathogenic bacteria because the pH is low. So that's how we use that tool um, in terms of food safety. So we can ferment products and reduce the pH, um, or we can have acid foods that are either naturally um, acidic 
or acidifieds and uh, or acidified and we're going to talk more about it later today we're going to have a lecture that it's all about acidified foods so the microorganisms just to kind of um, close up here they have different behaviors right we have the good ones that we can use for um, producing foods and fermenting foods and they're beneficial the bad ones that will spoil our products and we have the ugly ones that will cause disease so the good ones we add them intentionally to foods or we provide the conditions in the food for them to grow and we want to do that to um, develop flavors and textures that we like and that also helps with preservation extension of shelf life examples would be yogurt cheeses sour cream pickles and bread the good ones will enhance the preservation, they'll give us a, sh a longer shelf life. Sometimes they will enhance the nutritional value by uh, making some nutrients more available. They can enhance functionality, organoleptic properties, which means the flavors and texture. And most, in most cases, they will increase the economic value of that product. You can sell it for a higher price. The bad ones will change the food and cause them to go bad or spoil um, and they're going to lead to economic losses, of course, and that's what we're trying to prevent here and issues with food security. Um, the ugly ones are the ones that can make us sick. Those are the pathogens. Those are the ones that we want zero in our food. They can't be there. If they're <coughs> present, the food is adulterate and can't be consumed or sold. Illnesses can range from very mild life-threatening and I have a laundry list here of bacterial foodborne illnesses and the organisms that can cause them and the list is uh, quite large and it's not even like perhaps complete there's more organisms that can also cause foodborne illness foodborne illnesses but here we have the main ones listed and like I said some of them will cause gastrointestinal issues some may lead to more serious diseases um, just as an example E. coli, depending upon the type of E. coli, it can cause a, um, issues with your kidneys. Um, Listeria monocytogenes, if, um, is, if the, the individual that is affected by the organism is um, pregnant, for example, if it's, if, it's, if it's a woman that is pregnant, it can um, move into the fetus, it can cross the placenta barrier, and it can cause um, death of the fetus, it can cause abortion. So those are microorganisms that are very serious. You, you don't want that in your food, you don't want, um, you don't want to have to, um, to deal with those. Clostridium botulinum is the one that I mentioned that can make spores, and it can be an issue in canned foods because it's anaerobic, it likes that closed environment, it has the spores that it's really resistant to heat, so we need to take precaution in those cases. Um, Staphylococcus aureus, um, it's an organism that is very commonly associated with poor hygiene. Um, so if we keep you know, hygiene in the kitchen and employee hygiene, usually we can um, prevent issues with that microorganism. Salmonella, Campylobacter, very much associated with poultry products. It's common in that um, product, in that raw agricultural product. So we need to make sure that the the, the, the food is properly cooked, and if we apply the heat appropriately, 
then it shouldn't be an issue. So it's, it's a matter of knowing the microorganism, knowing um, what to do to eliminate or prevent it in, in our products. Um, here I just have a list of um, total cases from the CDC. This is an annual, annual basis. The number of total cases, the number of hospitalizations and deaths caused by different microorganisms, just so you understand which are the ones that we're most concerned about. So if you look at norovirus, which is um, a virus, um, it causes the majority of the disease. So we're very much concerned about it. And it also, um, it's very much transmissible by poor hygiene, um, by not, not washing your hands properly, using the restroom and not uh, washing your hands. Um, so if you, if you take those precautions, you can um, reduce uh, the, the number of, of cases in that regard. Um, another organism that is important is Salmonella, Clostridium perfringens. Um, also issues um, in food and some, um, the salmonella is associated perhaps with uh, not proper cooking. The Clostridium perfringens would be associated with not holding the food in that, uh, uh, following that guideline for temperature in food service. If you keep it hot enough and if you're going to cool it, you cool fast enough, you shouldn't have issues with this microorganism. And when you serve it, if you reheat it to the right temperatures, you shouldn't have issues. You see there that Clostridium botulinum is not even showing, which is a good thing because it means that the number of cases per year is very small. And we want to keep it that way because that organism is extremely, um, um, like in terms of fatality, it's a much higher rate than any other that you see in here. So the industry, the FDA, the inspectors, all work together with the industry and food processors to keep the numbers as low as possible by providing training and making sure that um, everybody is doing what they need to keep uh, Clostridium botulinum um, away from our food, um, our food supply. So with that, we uh, finish our introduction to food microbiology. I'll take any questions that you may have or any um, curiosity or concern about anything that we discussed uh, so far. Listeria, what are some of the, the high-risk foods that carry this? That's a, a um, very good question because traditionally and historically, and I'll give uh, my perspective and then the inspectors can jump in later and maybe add to that. Um, but basically, historically, we always associated them with deli meats um, and um, products that, like meat products that are refrigerated um, and maintain refrigerated, like hot dogs and that sort of thing. Um, however, over the years, the industry have done, um, have taken precautions to reduce those problems. And I explain why. Listeria is an organism that it's technically, it's very easy to kill. Temperature will kill it very easily. It's not a problem. However, it lingers in the environment a lot. So it's a, an environmental problem. So if you have a product that you cooked and then you expose to the environment, it can get recontaminated. And that's what happened with the deli meats because they would cook the ham, but then what do you do after you cook? You slice it. During the slicing, it's when you would have the contamination. So historically, they have been associated with deli meats and hot dogs and things of the sort. However, more recently, we had had cases of produce 
being associated. Uh, um, I think the last outbreak was a cantaloupe uh, with listeria. Um, and I think there was even a lady in Iowa that lost a baby because of it. And I remember very well because at the time I was pregnant. So I'm like, oh, I'm staying away from cantaloupe. And I really like cantaloupe. Um, so the issue was that the, 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 the contamination was in the environment. Like I said, this organism like linger, lingering in the environment. And they were not doing a proper job of washing and sanitizing those fruits as they were being picked up. So they were getting to the store with contamination on the outside. And then when people were cutting in, that contamination that was in the rind ended up inside. So because of that, we learned our lessons. And now we have a lot more procedures for um, food service um, as far as washing and sanitizing the rinds of uh, uh, melons before they cut it. Um, so I don't know if you guys want to add to that, if you have any. I would say it's. Shellfish. I would say uh, it's in a higher end because, in terms of keeping it fresh, if you keep it fresh and if you keep it iced, it should be okay. But it's a very perishable food. Um, it was growing in the environment. It was in the water. So there's a. Imagine the water activity of those products. It's really high, right? Um, that's how they. Um, like the, the shellfish, it, it's a filtering organism. It filters water, so water has to be there in and out to bring nutrients and take things out of that organism. So in terms of uh, being perishable, it's really high. But if you keep it refrigerated, if you keep it iced, um, then you might be able to maintain that um, shelf life and safety of that product. Any, anybody wants to add to that? Any, any of the ready-to-eat products that are refrigerated are ones that we're most concerned about, and that's why the sanitation step within our coolers and stuff is so important because you can have listeria that grows and it's where our date marking regulation comes from the seven seven day requirement because we know that after seven days at 40 degrees listeria is happy to grow to a, a log where it can cause issues and so that's why we want refrigerators to be kept sanitized and clean racks to be clean stuff like that Question? Please do. What about uh, biltong or jerkies or anything like that? How does the that process cured meats? Yeah, yes. Cured meats. So cured meats. Can you tell me what you do um, when you are in, in the process of making it? And we're gonna walk. Yeah. So what do you do when you make that product? That's like biltong. You you dip it in uh, apple cider. With sugar sauce and all that, and just coat it with salt for a little bit, and then rinse that off, and then hang it. Okay, so you coat it with salt. What does salt do? It pulls, debinds. It binds the water or pulls the water out, and then you hang it to dry. Dry. So you're taking more water out. Okay. So that's how we're preserving that product. We're reducing the water activity a lot, and some of those salts also have a antimicrobial activity. So they not only bind in the water, but they're bad for bacteria. Bacteria don't like it. So they, they, it's a double wham for bacteria. Is that uh, where the addition of the nitrite comes in? So yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. Uh-huh. It's the preservative. Okay. Question? 
Uh, my question was regarding botulism and canned goods. Um, what is the shelf life of a canned good and are the expiration dates valid? Okay, um, that's a great question because there's two different things. There's the food safety and the food quality of the product, right? So if we're talking about food safety, the process of canning, and we're gonna learn more about it later today, we're gonna have a lecture about it, you're gonna see that it's, it, it's developed to kill um, up to 12 logs of that spore. Do you guys remember one log was 90%, two logs 99, how many is 12 logs? 99.999, and we're gonna be here for a while saying nine, right? So it's extremely safe. If the product, if the process is um, applied correctly, that product inside of the can should be safe for a long time. Safe. But now, is it going to be of quality? There are some microorganisms that still may survive, believe you or not. They're more resistant to heat than Clostridium. So they can survive that temperature that was used to kill the spores of Clostridium because we're concerned about food safety. The quality is a, side, a good side effect, that by killing the pathogens, we also kill the spoilage organisms. So that's the good side effect of the processing. So now, the organisms that don't die because they're more heat resistant, and you keep that in the shelf, and let's say that your shelf, um, if it, it's in your house and it's a room that it's temperature controlled, more or less, because you have AC and, and heating and such, it might be stable for a while. But if you're in a warehouse now, that in the summer, the temperature may shoot, shoot up to what, 100, 110, maybe inside of that warehouse more, um, those organisms that survive the heat process can now grow because they like that heat. They like that high temperature. So they're gonna start spoiling the product in the warehouse, for example. Beyond that, we have lipids in our foods, right? We have fats and, we, and those are good. They, gi they give us flavor. A lot of the flavor associated with a food product is because of the fat that it's in there. With time, that fat starts oxidizing. So yes, the can may be safe for three years or so, but will it taste good? I don't know, depending upon the product may not because that could be oxidized, depending upon the storage conditions, other organisms may grow. They're not gonna make you sick, but definitely it may not, um, it might not give you an experience that will lead you to buy back that product. So that's why the industry is concerned and put a shelf life and an expiration date because they want you to have the best experience. So you go back to the store and buy their product again. More questions? Well, this was great. Lots of questions. Um,